Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. Today's episode brings us to the Hudson Valley, where Boyd Vardy speaks with us about tracking big game in South Africa, creating a purposeful life through self-discovery, and his new book, A Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. Boyd is a certified master life coach, author, and TED speaker. He runs retreats that merge tracking, coaching, and storytelling into experiential learning events at Londolozi Game Reserve in South Africa, the sanctuary where he was born and raised. Welcome to the show, Boyd. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Great to be with you. So be- before you became a coach, um, you were a tracker. I guess you still are. Uh, can you explain what a tracker does? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the area where I grew up, in the wild eastern part of South Africa, um, it's the home of the Shangan tribe. And the Shangan tribe, tribe are some of the best trackers in the world. And they're some of the best trackers because they have a natural inclination towards observation. Uh, they're storytellers. They are nomads. They're incredible mimics. And so all of those dynamics give them a, a great connection to the ancient art form of tracking. So um, in 1926, by way of a bit of background, my family mm-hmm. bought a bankrupt cattle farm uh, in the heart of that region, the, the eastern part of South Africa, and, and, and in the area where these people have lived as nomads for many, many years. And initially, my family went there uh, as hunters. This was through 1926. And for three generations, that's what my family did there. My great-grandfather, my grandfather grew up hunting lions there. My father and uncle grew up hunting lions. And then in 1969, my grandfather died very suddenly. And my father and uncle, who were 15 and 17 at the time, were left this wild old bankrupt cattle farm that had animals on it, but you didn't really see them. Um, and they gathered in Johannesburg after the loss of their father. And the family advisors said, well, first things first, you've got to look after your mother. And so you've got to get rid of that wild place where you used to go to hunt lions. I mean, hunting lions was a bad idea to start with. It's a malaria area. There's nothing going on down there. The whole place is overrun by scrub the animals run away when they see you. There's no re- good reason to be there. So you've got to get rid of it. <laughs> and it must have been the, kind of the arrogance and genius of, of being a teenager. But the two of them stood up and they said they, they felt a, something deep inside of them. And they felt a connection to the land. And, you know, one of those moments where you just get a kind of inner knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that inner knowing has become something that I've become fascinated with as my life has gone on. But, but they stood up in the middle of this meeting with all the grown-up family advisors and they said, well, we're keeping it. And, and one of the advisors said, well, how do you plan to take care of your mother? You've got a big mouth, young man. And they <laughs> said, well, we, <laughs> we'll make it pay. We'll make it work. 
And that's how my family got into the safari business. Mm. Um, and so this piece of land was, it was just a bankrupt cattle farm. It had three mud huts on it. In fact, I'm told that occasionally when it rained, people would go outside of the hut for shelter. <laughs> um, it, was, it was very rickety. And these, these young boys moved down there and very soon afterwards, my mother and and they started to get friends of the family who would come down and stay in the mud huts and they would take them out and teamed up with local Shangan trackers. They started to show them the odd animal. It would be an animal here and an animal there. Mm-hmm. Um, but because they had skills of these local trackers and they themselves were learning these skills, they got the occasional sighting. Um, but it really, it, I, I, you know, I can't say enough about how rudimentary it was. You might see the odd herd of impala, which is like an antelope. You might see the odd kudu, but you really didn't see much else. Mm. Um, and, and just to get a sense of how, how big is the, the property? Property is about 30,000 acres. Wow. That's huge. Um, 14,000 hectares, but it's connected to a larger region, which is the greater trans frontier Limpopo trans frontier national park, which is an area of about 10 million acres. Wow. So it's a wild area about the size of uh, Switzerland, you know. Mm. Um, anyway, they, it was very rudimentary. The odd person would come. They had their three mud huts. Nothing really worked. Um, and then they had two incidences, and this is a long way around to the tracking, but they had two incidences um, that changed kind of everything on this piece of land. The first incident was they met a man by the name of Ken Tinley. And Ken was kind of a, a shaman of wilderness, if you if you could call him that. He he was incredibly connected to the land. He could feel the landscape almost moving inside of him, and he had a sense as a as a scientist too of how how moisture moved across the topography and how the fauna and flora was informed by the way the moisture moved through different soil types. He's just very connected. He said to them, "If you want this place to work." You must partner with the land and you must think of the animals as your kin. Hmm. And they said to him, well, partner with the land, what do you mean? And he, sa- he said to them, where the land has been overgrazed and there's scrub, you need to start to restore the micro catchments. So he showed them how to clear away the scrub that comes up when the cattle have overgrazed the land and how to pack it into the ravines where they were losing moisture and the land was eroding. And as they started to do this work, the grassland started to return. And there was this beautiful... Um, process by which the land started to come back to life almost. And suddenly you would start to see animals on these open clearings where once there had been thick scrub. And there's this tremendous feeling of nature responding to this deep intention to, to start to restore. And then into the midst of that, um, probably about 10 years into that work, one day my father and uncle were driving home and by now they were getting a little bit older and in the late afternoon light, a leopard stepped out onto the road in front of them. Mm. And for a moment, she stopped and she allowed herself to be seen. And that was kind of unheard of at the time. No one really saw leopards. They'd been hunted intensively in that area. If you saw a leopard, it was trying to get away from you. But she, for a moment, allowed herself to be seen. And they drove home. And when they got home, they stopped the vehicle and they sat there in silence. And, and then my uncle turned to my father and he said, whatever just happened, that's my future. Again, this kind of like deep mm. inner knowing. And so then he teamed up with a local man, and this is the, the sort of the full loop back to tracking. He teamed up with a local man, a family who had grown up uh, from a family who had grown up hunting and gathering in that area, a man by the name of Elmon Mplongo. 
And his brother is actually the man who's had a big impact on my life, Renia Simplongo, who I write about in the book. Mm-hmm. The Simplongos were just the most tremendous trackers. They, you know, they had just grown up inside the art form. They had grown up tracking to literally to eat. Um, they had grown up tracking lions and then stealing bits of meat from the kills. And so they just had a tremendous skill as naturalists. And so for the next 10 years, my uncle and Almon and Klongo went out and every day they followed that leopard. And over the course of 12 years, they built a relationship with her. She allowed them into her world and she learned that they meant her no harm. They did away with hunting. They'd done away with hunting and now it was just a chance to observe and be in connection with these wild creatures. And that leopard became known as the mother leopard because for two reasons. One, she had 12 litters of cubs and all her cubs grew up modeling their mother's trust of the Land Rover. They knew that the Land Rover could come near and observe and it meant them no harm. And the second reason she became the mother was because suddenly these these young leopards that were going wild would allow themselves to be seen. And so Londolozi became a place with a population of wild leopards that were allowing themselves to be seen. And that had a tremendous pull um, to the mindset of people all over the world. And so people started to come. And out of the relationship between my uncle and Elmon and Tongo, we started to become an operation that regularly tracked animals to show them uh, for photographic opportunities, for moments of connection to people all over the world. Mm. And so I grew up uh, in a safari operation with a deep-seated culture of tracking. Tracking was almost in our DNA. And every morning, the guides and the trackers would wake up, they would get their guests, they would go out and they wouldn't just drive around randomly. They would find tracks and they would follow. Um, and so very deep in the culture that I grew up in was this old art form of following. And mm-hmm. so from a very young age, I was brought into that process. I was and, – and when I was young, I, I thought that I was just learning um, to track. I was learning how you – how you tune into the story of an animal moving across a landscape, how you train your eyes to see the faint signs, how you listen to the alarm calls of the birds, how you know the alarm calls of the animals, and how you tune into the way that everything is speaking to you, and how you get into the mindset of the animal, and you learn to move like the animal, and you learn um, to feel the mood of the animal by the way the cadence of the tracks are laid down. You learn to understand the animal's behavior through what it's doing and how, and, and how you can, when you're following an animal for a long period of time, it's almost like a profound kind of intimacy. You're very close with that animal. You're moving like it's moving. You're noticing if it's marking its territory. Is it moving fast? What's its mood? What's its state? And the whole time, you're teaching yourself this very intricate art form of seeing the way its feet land. Mm-hmm. And tracking tracking's a funny thing. You know, when you first start doing it, um, it's kind of like you have no idea what you're looking for, but then with time, your eye starts to pick up these very subtle signs. And it's kind of like, I think, and I write about it in Lion Tracker's Guide, it's kind of like learning a foreign language. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. at first it's like, what? And then suddenly you start to become accustomed and then it starts to come to life for you. And suddenly you start to realize like, gosh, I'm actually tuned into this. Um, so that's, that's how I grew up. I grew mm. up following. I grew up around amazing trackers. I grew up in that mindset and in that DNA. So practically today, what you basically do, um, well, you, you mentioned this in the, in the beginning chapters of the book, but you, um, you 
search for the wild animals, in particular the lion, not for hunting, but just to identify where they're at so you can report back to the Land Rover so they can kind of drive by and make an appearance so people can observe and witness the lions and the wild animals in, in their natural environment, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And often the lions, lions and leopards and various other game will be miles off a road. Mm-hmm. And so what the trackers do is they'll, they'll cut the tracks, they'll follow the animal deep uh, into terrain where you would never normally go with a vehicle. And if we find it in there, we'll be able to report back to um, the various people who are on safari you know, this is where they are. It may be possible to get a vehicle in there or it may be possible to walk in there and observe them without disturbing them. Um, and so for years I worked as a guide and, and then my life kind of pivoted into a different kind of uh, arena. But still when I'm on the reserve and my passion is tracking, I'm always working as a kind of a tracking team to report to the other people on safari where there might be animals. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, your life kind of taking a, a new path. And I assume you're here, you're talking about here uh, being a certified master life coach. So how did you get into coaching and how did these two paths, tracking and coaching kind of intersect? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those wild, uh, wild coincidences. But what happened for me was I was, uh, I was working as a guide and I met a woman by the name of Martha Beck and she came, she came on safari and very quickly I realized that we had a great rapport. Um, we were talking and then one day her and I went to, to track a rhino together. And she said to me, after we had been involved in this very intricate process, she said to me, you know, you and I do the same thing. I said, we do. I mean, how could that be? What, what do you do in America? She said, uh, well, I've just watched the process by which you followed this animal and I help people um, find what they're looking for. I help them find their gifts. I help them find their purpose. I help them find their, their meaning. And, you know, I was kind of struck by this idea and her backstory was that she had taught a, a business course at Thunderbird University and the course that she had taught was a course on how to interview incredibly well for jobs. And she realized that the way to interview, she's just a brilliant woman. She realized that the way to interview well was to really care about what you were interviewing for. And so she designed a process that helped people get really in touch with what they actually wanted to do. And then they would interview better. And so, and then one day she read about herself as America's first life coach. And, you know, I should say to you, Jeremy, that I I was, you know, at this time I was kind of like a beer drinking, rugby playing (laughs) lion tracking South African. And the whole notion of like life coach was a bit like my initial thoughts were like, what have, what have the Americans come up with now? <laughs> How old were you? Uh, uh, I was about 23 at the time. Okay. <laughs> but, but what happened was, um, a few things. One is at that time I was going through some difficult things and she helped me get through them. And I started to realize and not by telling me what I should do, but simply by getting me in touch with a deeper part of myself that was actually speaking to me and calling to me. And as I started to heal, I started to realize like, okay, this is not about giving people advice. This is about giving people their own guidance. Um, so that started to happen. And then she said to me a second thing, which was that the restoration of the planet will come out of a shift in human consciousness. And at that time I thought that I would be a guide and then I would probably be involved in the conservation field But when she said that, 
again, out of a kind of a deep place inside of myself, I felt my own life track in the way that maybe my father felt it when they decided to keep the property and maybe my uncle felt it when he saw that leopard. I felt something deeper than my rational ideas of what I should be doing strike me. Um, and, and it was, you know, this incredible thing to me too, that I had seen a wild place restored, not conserved, not Mm -hmm. protected, but actually brought back to its, to its natural state. And so I felt a kind of a convergence of all these things in my life, my passion as a tracker, this restoration of a landscape that I grew up with, the idea that I could heal. And if I could heal through some of the things that had broken me, then other people could heal. And the notion that, um, it wasn't going to be conservation projects that changed our relationship with nature. It was people actually changing. Mm-hmm. That was the critical thing. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned, and, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So just all of that coming together kind of emerged into a very strange sort of life path. Um, and then, and then I really started to see how tracking is anyone who starts a journey of, of personal discovery or a journey of transformation. Well, the mindset and the approach of the tracker becomes very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned that uh, Martha Beck helped you uh, get through some difficult uh, things. Uh, do, you, do you remember what you were going through at that point in your life? Yeah, I can tell you that um, I, had, I had been through a series of experiences um, that had been fairly traumatizing. Um, in a single year, my family had gone through a very difficult um, kind of, uh, they had gone through a litigation, mm. which had been, you know, I don't know if you know the legal world, but to be litigated against. And it was basically a kind of raid um, to try and get a hold of this property that we had been on. And so we had been through that and it had been incredibly crushing and uncertainty and the, the legal system is uh, tends to be more about how much money you have than the truth. And then in that same year, um, I had been with my mother and sister involved in a, in a very, uh, terrifying home invasion in, in Johannesburg. And we had been held up and tied up for a couple of hours. And it was just this very uncertain, terrifying sort of situation. And what was strange about it for me was that I had grown up around animals. And, you know, one of the amazing things about wild animals, even predators is that they're incredibly honest. They tell you with their body language all the time where they're at, and they they convey to you very clearly um, what their mood is, and if they want you to back off, they show you with their body. And being being attacked by humans was such a strange experience for with, for me because I couldn't read them. Hmm. I didn't know like where they were at. I didn't know what they wanted. I didn't know what the violence could elevate to. So I'd been through that, and then in that same year, later in that year. I had been uh, attacked by a crocodile um, sitting in sitting in a river where I shouldn't have been. Mm. And I'd had people with me who I was guiding and I was incredibly ashamed by the fact that, you know, I had, you know, put them in this situation. And so I was trying to work through all of that. And the sort of what had happened was I'd become extremely depressed as a result of just trying to process all of that. Um, I'd become you know, probably on the depression, anxiety axis, I was on both sides. Mm-hmm. Understandably, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, what she helped me realize is that 
she helped me realize how to heal through some of that, how to let some of that kind of post-traumatic stress go. And then also that there's nothing more healing. And I talk about it in the book. There's nothing more healing than finding your gifts and sharing them. Mm-hmm. And so some of the healing was about like letting go of what had happened. But some of it was also about getting in touch with what I was meant to do. And I found that the more I, the more I got in touch with that, you know, the anxiety started to go and the depression started to lift naturally. Um, and so, you know, still to this day, I'm, I'm less, I feel like there's where someone has been traumatized. You have to witness that you have to, you have to make space to hold that. But then at a certain point in the process, it's about moving forward towards building and creating a life that actually nourishes and feeds you. Mm -hmm. The, the book opens up with, um, I, I guess, an account of your return to the to the Bushveld after a period of time in the United States. And later in the book, you mentioned coming to the United States, mentoring with Dr. Beck, um, I think. Uh, yeah, I, w- I mean, I was incredibly lucky because Alex and Renius, who I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. were incredible mentors to me in the bush. And they, they taught me the art form of, of tracking. Um, and they taught me they also, by being close to them and watching them, I, I experienced the archetype of the tracker. And then when I met Martha, she became my first mentor as an inner tracker. And then later she, she, um, introduced me to another teacher of mine who was, he was, he was more of a master of ceremonial spaces. And so for a period of time, I came to America to apprentice with both of them and learn the ways of how you take someone inward that the dynamics of healing, how you create an atmosphere of transformation, how you get someone in touch with the part of themselves that absolutely knows how to heal, but also knows what it's here to do. And so I was, I started off learning in those spaces. And then, uh, with both of them, I started, uh, then running my own program, starting to teach, running my own groups, mm-hmm. um, starting to share just my own learning inside of that. This other person was Rodrigo. Yes. Yeah. So you'd mentioned uh, something about ceremonies. Um, could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So when I met him, um, he walked into a room where a group of people had gathered for a ceremony. And as he looked around the room, I saw what I saw was a tracker. I saw someone who was tapped in to a whole lot of information that was in the room if you knew what you were looking for. Mm-hmm. He was looking at the way people carried themselves. He was looking at the shape of their body. He was feeling when he hugged you the texture of the muscle. He was looking uh, into the eyes to see you know, what, what, what was in the eyes of other people. He was aware of the tone of the voice of different people. And, and if you're someone who's worked with people for a long time, it's a tremendous amount of information um, that's in the room if you know what you're looking for. And again, just like a tracker, you, as a tracker, you could walk someone down a path um, and they have no idea that you know, there's, a, there's, there's information there. And then a tracker could walk down that path and tell you a leopard walked here, um, an owl swooped down to catch a rodent here. Um, this is the, the hole in the tree here is where a squirrel lives. And so I was incredibly struck by that idea that there's information, but you have to teach yourself to see it. And when I met him, I immediately saw that he was in touch with a whole lot of information in the room that other people weren't in touch with. And then inside of ceremonial spaces, he started to create a context and a container in which people could 
start to do inner work in which they could start to um, actually realize what they were carrying, realize what they were striving to that wasn't theirs. And what I mean by that is what were they trying to do because they thought that that's what you should do because that's what the dominant culture kept telling you. If you're this, you be successful. If you achieve this, then you'll feel good. If you have this, you'll mm -hmm. finally feel like you've made it. And a lot of the work was realizing that we're constantly presented to um, with what it would mean to be successful. And then you either don't achieve that or you feel and you feel lousy or you do achieve it and you realize, well, that ain't it. And in ceremonial spaces, it was simply about learning to be present with yourself, to strip away the trauma that had frozen you in time somewhere, to strip away the false ambition that you had been given and to feel yourself connected with other people, to feel yourself present with yourself, to feel that you were able to belong um, and to change the way you made meaning. You know, in a society where the individual self is disconnected from the whole, and that's what happens in a consumeristic society, mm -hmm. the search for meaning is reduced to a constant comparison. Like, how am I doing in comparison to? And in a more natural system, it's about discovering yourself in relation rather than comparison. And so, in those spaces, I saw people heal. I saw people um, get more in touch with what I call the wild self, the part of themselves that really knew. I saw them let go of what they should be. I saw them let go of, the, of some of the trauma that had come to them. And as they healed, what I saw, and I talk about this too, that I saw that people who healed developed like a totally different way of wanting to live. It was more about simplicity. It was a lot less about having things and much more about having experiences. Mm -hmm. People who, who started to get in touch with this place felt a kind of a natural pull and allure towards stillness, nature, silence, connection. They became people who started to naturally live differently towards a different set of rules and metrics. And in the way they lived without, you know, being activists at all, they started to inspire the way other people lived just because you, when you were around them, you, you could feel the presence that they were in, you could feel the connection that they were in. And without them ever saying, this is how you should live. You were just like, God, this is what it's actually about. Um, mm. and so that's what I mean by learning to live as a tracker. You learn to, you learn to go inward and get in touch with, um, the way life is speaking to you through the feelings inside yourself. And you learn to follow the feeling of aliveness. You learn to feel it, follow the feeling of nourishment and you learn to move forward into the unknown. And in that way, you start to make a different life for yourself. Mm. Um, I might be getting a bit too abstract here. <laughs> no, no, no. It, 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 it rings a, a bell to me. And to be honest, when I, when I read this story of Rodrigo, I think he was from Peru. Yeah. Um, and I, I read the idea of ceremonies. You know, the first thing, if I'm honest, the first thing that popped into my mind was this kind of shaman-like um, you know, psychedelic, <laughs> you know, uh, ceremony in the wilderness. And it, it's interesting because a lot of the psychedelic research that's going on in the United States, uh, in the major universities like Johns Hopkins, uh, when they talk about the, the benefits from psychedelic research and things like magic mushrooms or whatever, the, yeah. the, the breakthroughs occur and the benefits occur when the individual has a realization on by his or her own self, like when they have a self-realization or a self-discovery about 
the way that their life is going, that's when all of the benefits and outcomes kind of bubble up. And I think that's just a fa- fascinating, um, fascinating self-realization, the power of self-realization through psychedelics. But it could also happen, obviously, you know, without any substances like that. But both both ways are doorways, and you know what what I was shown by him is he, he was a he was a wonderful guide in that he never he never told you what to do. He created a space for you to do your own discovery within. And, and that's the key, as you're saying, is like to get in touch with the way that you already know. Um, but that knowing has become clouded, um, by a a ton of socialization Mm -hmm. or by a ton of trauma. Um, and, and, you know, some trauma, as I was saying, some trauma is like you were abused. Um, you, you grew up in, a difficult environment. Um, there was, there was like a violent kind of abuse and other trauma is just growing up in that, in that state of constant comparison and that constant sense of what you have to be, to be a success in this world that is sold to you. Um, and, and so that, that, that becomes like, you never really get to rest. You never get to be yourself. You never get to actually get in touch with what you feel called to, because you're, you're running to, to be the success that you were told to be all the should, this is what mm-hmm. I should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when people can start to strip that away and get in touch with a more essential place, um, they move forward, not out of a sense of this is what I've got to do, but out of a sense of this is what I want to do. This is what I feel called to. And people like that have tremendous energy and output. Mm-hmm. It's a modern life in some ways in society, modern society gives us these pre-established paths that we, we, as you say, feel that we should walk down. But modern life is also like, you know, very comfortable. So, um, you know, I wonder what you have to, um, what, what you think about this notion of, of comfort in modern society. Does that, does that somehow inhibit us, uh, make us less willing to take risks, uh, in being what we want to be in this world or do they create, does modern life create a series of distractions? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I, one of the things about the trackers is every morning, you know, when we went out to track, Mm -hmm. we would go without knowing. We would go without knowing if we would find a track. We would go without knowing 100% where that lion might have roared. We would go without knowing what the day led to us. And I realized that one of the key things about the tracker is they go without knowing. And if you want to make change in modern life, modern life is obsessed with security. You know, people, we're, we're, we're terrified. Um, and we're constantly sold our fears. Um, you only need to, um, briefly watch a, a TV in America always blows my mind because they're these drug company adverts, you know, and it's like, it's, it's constantly selling you, you're going to get sick. You need this thing. It's, um, so, I mean, we're sold off fears all the time. And so, you know, that's just one thing that comes to mind. It's like, if you want to make changes towards something that feels more essential to you, part of that process is going to mean giving up security and not knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then letting yourself move forward as a tracker towards what feels a little bit better, what feels good, what, what feels like it brings you to life. But so many people who I've spoken to have said to me, when I know exactly what all the next steps are, then I'll make changes. And, 
I, it's just not my experience that it works like that. You have to start to let go of some things and, and be willing to, to not know exactly how it's going to come out and look. And that's where big transformation comes. Um, the other thing that I think is that, man, convenience is not all it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. Convenience and safety is not all it's cracked up to be. Um, there's a weird kind of dulling of the senses when you live towards convenience and safety all the time. There's a kind of domestication that comes with that. And I think it's for men and women, but certainly for men, like there's a, there's a kind of place, a way that the masculine psyche has to know itself inside of struggle uh, or like gets closer to itself inside of struggle and against um, something much greater than it and something that scares you, you know, something that, something that scares you also brings you to life. And it's a strange thing when you have been put against something, um, that scares you. What, what, what I find is a, is a kind of respect and humility naturally emerges out of that. Um, you feel yourself, you know, in a, up against and in union with something much greater than you. And the natural byproduct of that out of that kind of like, whoa, are we going to, is this, whoa, how does this go? You know, mm-hmm. are we going to be okay here? Like you feel that you have to operate inside of that. It asks you, it asks part of you to step forward. Um, and, and inside of that, you start to sort of know parts of yourself. You start to know who you are in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's absolutely critical. Um, I think that, you know, too much, I, too much fear and uncertainty. It's chaotic. Like you, it's too much. But you have to have a place where you can have encounters with those edges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, 18th century thinker um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Really influential in terms of political and philosophical thought. But you know, he was very cr- critical of modern society um, and, and says, you know, very kind of poetically that modern society basically is like the the garlands of flowers. Uh, you know, that, that decorate our chains that weigh us down. So in some ways, you know, modern society distracts us to the fact that we are enslaved by it. Oh, man. And, I, and that's, and you can get this in a few days of camping, you know, mm-hmm. where you're actually out there and you do everything yourself. And there's a wonderful sense of reliance and resilience that comes where you just, you know, make your own fire, cook your own food, there's a mindfulness that comes like, you know, if you're out, you spend a couple of hours walking and then you, you get back to your campsite and you're going to create some, you know, you're going to make your meal for the day. And it's like this tremendously exciting thing that, you know, it's something that you do. And because you bring so much awareness and attention to it, a mindfulness flows into it and feels really full. Mm-hmm. And then you, and then you, you sleep and without any distractions, you actually enjoy your sleep and, you feel your body's circadian rhythm start to, to change. And as night starts to fall, when you're in a wild place with wild creatures, you feel a kind of alertness wake up inside of you. And, you know, it, there is an edge to it when you're sleeping on the ground in a place where a pride of lions could walk past, but it's, it's also, you feel very alive and very connected. And over, uh, there's a line in the book where it says, you know, over a few days in the wilderness, when you're not looking at yourself in the mirror you stop being a concept of yourself and you're just yourself. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's an experience that's getting really rare now as we all think that more convenience is making things easier, but it's just actually disconnecting us from 
from the simple joys of living. Right. And you don't need to go all the way to South Africa to do that either. Just go to the to the national park or the state park. And- yeah. I mean, it's it's and even more deeply, like you're walking around in the wildest thing you have is this like meat suit. <laughs> um, you're in some something wild. And if you want to live a wild life, you can start just by getting in touch with your wild self, you know, and, and what, what do I mean by that? I mean, if you just start living towards the feeling, not the rational idea of what you should do, but towards what actually feels good, um, and to what, what makes you feel alive and expansive, uh, you will start to find, you will start to, it'll start to pull you towards a curiosity and a life that is That'll be like, oh God, you can't do that. Oh, you can't do that. Well, you know what? If you're wild, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean just kind of like radical hedonism, I, because actually that doesn't feel good after a while. <laughs> I mean, like consistently just feeling for that what actually brings you to life. Um, and people who start to move towards that, uh, they start to, it start their life starts to pull them towards unexpected places, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it means to live as a tracker anywhere. So it's kind of getting in touch with the feelings and the intuitions that the body produces naturally instead of, um, I guess, these artificial ideas that, that we think we feel. Totally. And, and the discipline of, of a tracker is attention. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can even, if you go through your day to day and you just notice who made you feel energized and who made you feel like a little bit depleted, what activities actually made your body feel expansive? Like you actually, while you were doing it, you felt like, whoa. Um, and if you just did that for a day, it would tell you a lot of, it would give you a lot of information and then you could start to expand that, but it's a fun experiment. And you know, most of us, like what you might find is that you traipse off to diligently go see your friends. And then you realize actually like, this is not feeding me. Um, you know, we just sort of in the pattern of this is what it is, but we're not actually paying attention is what, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me a lot of mindfulness, you know, meditation practice, Buddhist, you know, philosophy. I'm wondering if, if you did any studies in, in Buddhism, have you trained um, in meditation or anything like that? Yeah, I've, I've had a, a deep interest in Eastern mysticism since I was in my teens. Um, and so I've been involved in meditation since I was probably about 15. Um, my uncle actually, my uncle was a filmmaker and he had, uh, a woman who he worked with on, on his crew. She was a documentary filmmaker. She was a camera woman. And she, I remember when I was about 15, she taught me to meditate for the first time. And she had a, a, gu, a guru in the Manali Valley in, in northern India who had taught her. And so I was very interested in it. And then I just read everything under the sun. Um, and I think probably, you know, where I land now is, is I, um, I feel like a Taoist. In not, uh, although I wouldn't like say I'm officially a Taoist. I feel like the natural way, the way of nature is the way of the Tao. Mm-hmm. It is just the way of life's intelligence. Uh, the way life knows how to unfold itself. And so I'm, I'm kind of interested in living in harmony with that. 
And I feel like part of living inside the archetype of a tracker is simply to be present so that I can feel where the current of life is asking me to put my attention. Um, and it, it has you know, pulled me into this very strange path of taking people into nature uh, via the Track Your Life programs to do these two things, to track and then to start the process of learning inner tracking. Um, it has taken me into sitting for people in ceremonial spaces as they learn to let themselves be more natural um, it has taken me into storytelling and it's none, it's no, it's, n it's nothing that you could sit down and say, like, uh, someone once asked me, how did you get this job? And I was like, oh, I didn't like, you can't set out to get this job. <laughs> it's, it's learning to live towards what's calling you. And then, you know, there is always the challenge of like, can you actually live like this? And I mean, you know, does it support you? Uh, does it put food on the table? And the strange thing that I consistently find is the more authentically I follow, um, there's always enough for me. Mm -hmm. So your, your, your book is basically, um, kind of using the, the tracker, uh, the profession of a tracker as a metaphor to learn about the self and to kind of investigate one's life in, in, in this world. Right. And you give several different tips, I guess, but ways in which, you know, the metaphors kind of align. So, I mean, you talk about, you know, being receptive to the call and being, you know, having awareness uh, about the track uh, without running down all of them. I was wondering if you could maybe explain one or two of those and how, how maybe the metaphor of a tracker can apply to us, you know, thinking and reflecting about our lives. Sure. I mean, one of the things that I was always struck by that Renius Mchongo would do and that Alex was, was brilliant at is they would get onto a track and just imagine this, imagine a single lion moving, um, through a wilderness around the size of Switzerland, you know? Mm. Um, and there are places where that lion is moving over, you know, sandy ground, but there's places where he's moving over leaves. There's places where he's moving over stone. There's places where the ground is hard. There's places where he turns at a right angle. There's places where he moves back on himself. There's places where he moves erratically while he's tracking. And so when you, when you cut the first track and I talk about the first track, cause it's really important. And what Renius would do is he would get the first track and then he would get the next first track. And then he would get the next first track. Mm. Then he would get the next first track. And what I saw him doing as we looked out over this vast wilderness is he was dialing down the infinite possibilities of where that animal might have gone in a you know, 360 degree range to a single moment of presence and then another moment of presence and then another moment of presence. And he knew that all he needed was the next first track and then the next first track and then the next first track. He didn't need to know exactly where that animal had gone. In fact, he couldn't know where that animal might have gone, but he could find it by, by staying inside of the presence of the next step to take. And so people who make radical transformation of their lives, in their lives, are people who, the people who I see make consistent transformation are people who work very well with first tracks they make daily small steps towards what feels a little better. They don't, they don't go from where they are to knowing exactly 
what the next thing for them is. They just move towards something that feels a little bit better and then a little bit better and a little bit better. And they let life keep showing them as they take these small steps towards something that just feels a little bit better, life will show them the next one. And so part of making change is just consistently find a small first track. Um, And if you do that, you know, it it opens up the next thing. Mm. Um, So that, that would be one thing. Dial down all the things you should do to one simple moment of present action. One simple moment of present action and then another simple moment of present action. Um, that is the way of the tracker to start to bring yourself into the moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll just add here in closing that, you know, the, the book, although it is quite small, there are, you know, a lot of lessons uh, within it and also a lot of metaphors on the tracker to, you know, using those principles to, to reexamine one's life. So that was great, Boyd. Can you tell us um, how we can find you online and all all your socials? Yeah, absolutely. The The best way to get me is just on boydvati.com. Um, you can, you'll find the book on there. You'll find links uh, to everything that you need. And uh, Instagram and, and Facebook, I'm also Boyd Vati. Um, so you can get me there. And you'll be able to get the book off the website. Um And there's also some other interesting stuff there if you're interested in living like a tracker. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Boyd. Absolutely, Jeremy. Thanks so much. Enjoyed chatting with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All Over the Place. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Please subscribe to our newsletter to receive emails with travel-related news, book recommendations, and resources from around the world. Links can be found at allovertheplacepodcast.com.